Hello friends and shalom. This is Tom with Truth Ignited Ministry and today I'm bringing you a part one of a message titled Keys to Real Revival. Every several years it seems that there's a report of a revival or a movement of God happening somewhere and such is the case as I'm delivering this message in fact where a number of Christian college campuses have reported a spiritual breakout. And that's probably a more appropriate term in most cases of such happenings than revival is. When such events happen, naturally it'll spark discussions about what true revival or a genuine move of the Spirit is. These conversations are not intended to judge or question or criticize or condemn whatever current events initiated them. Rather, they're intended to keep people focused and not allow the emotional hype common to such events lead people away from the core elements of biblical truth in them. Sadly, when left unchecked, often a spiritual outbreak can become spiritually dangerous. So it's important to address these matters before problems develop. Unfortunately, there are many who see this as an attack on a current outbreak itself who will, you know, they'll begin efforts of backlash against the truth, saying such things as, well, Satan would never do that, or, you know, there's masses of people worshiping God. What could possibly be wrong with that? Now, I'll address the former later in this teaching, but as for the latter, there's nothing wrong with people worshiping God, so long as they are truly, truly worshiping the God of the Bible in spirit and in truth. And if that's not what they're doing, then there's a lot wrong with it. As a result of this, I issued a few simple statements about the concept of revival and how we should be able to biblically determine where the Holy Spirit is present. Think about it for a moment. The prophet Ezekiel seems very clear in stating that through the new covenant, people will be filled with the Spirit and then caused to walk in God's law, which of course is the Torah. And you can see Ezekiel 36, 27 for that. You know, if we truly believed that this is what the Holy Spirit does, which by the way, that would be more properly rendered spirit of holiness, if you look up Ruach HaKodesh, that's really how it should translate as spirit of holiness, then, you know, if we believe that, then a lot of the discussions that I hear and read about during times of spiritual breakouts and whatnot, those discussions wouldn't even be happening. But before getting into some of that, I want to go through some foundational aspects of the Christian concept of revival. Recently, in response to this most current spiritual breakout, Dr. Craig Kanner posted a brief article about what revival is, at least in his opinion. And, and of course, Dr. Kanner is a very well-respected theologian. Now, the article makes a number of observations that I think the majority would gravitate towards, but there were two points that caught my attention, and they're points that I think most people would miss or overlook. First, Dr. Keener notes that the term revival is extra-biblical. 
this is an interesting choice of word because he didn't say unbiblical, a word often used by issues felt to be against scripture. And while technically both terms can be used interchangeably, extra-biblical tends to be used of things not found in the Bible, but also don't seem to oppose the Bible. So for this study, we're going to use unbiblical to, to refer to things that are totally against the Bible, and extra-biblical to refer to things that really aren't in the Bible, but might not be opposed to the Bible. And if there is such a thing as a genuine Holy Spirit-led revival, then it certainly would not be opposed to Scripture. The next point that caught my attention was where Dr. Keener stated that a lot goes on in the name of Christianity that isn't very Christian. The same is true of the history of revivals. God is God, but people are still people. One generation's unique behavior during some revival can become the next generation's tradition and the following generation's legalism. Some claims of revival are attempts to stir up emotional or stir up emotion or create hype. And those who want a name for themselves often hijack movements that God initiates among the lowly. You know what? I've already seen this. In larger and more influential ministries right now, because of what has happened at these college campuses, have begun to come out and say things like this. I saw one said something along this line. We're looking for a church that can fit X amount of people to host a revival. No, no wait, hold, hold up. Hold on just one moment. Host a revival? Just think about that for a second. You know, we've got to be realistic and without speaking directly against anything currently in motion that could be a work of the Spirit, use discernment, exercise caution, and issue warnings against any point of concern that may arise in any spiritual outbreak. Look, there's big ministries right now, and, and I could name them by name, and, and most people wouldn't know exactly who they are, and you know, they hold big miracle crusades, and it's been going on for years in stadiums and different places, and you know, they, they hold these grand crusades, and miracles are reported as happening and everything. And then, and then I get people come to me and say, well, you know that that, that person was doing this, or, or you know that this person was, was doing that. And, and I'm like, hold up a second here. I say, you're not going to get me caught up in speaking against that ministry. Just because I might not agree with all of their theology, I don't know with 100% certainty that it's not the Holy Spirit moving and actually healing people at those crusades. So I'm not going to speak against that because blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a big deal. But, but there's a big difference between speaking against that in that manner and addressing theology or legitimate concerns about what's going on. Okay? Now, I've studied the history of Christianity, and my major in college was actually evangelism and revival. Some of my classes outside of the general Bible stuff, you know, stuff like the 
Old Testament class and the New Testament class and the introduction to the Bible class, th those kinds of things that everybody has to take no matter what your major is. Some of my classes outside of that included such titles as History of Revivalists, Spiritual Warfare, Evangelism Among Contemporary Religions in America, Evangelism Among Major World Religions, Methods of Evangelism, and Media Age Evangelism. And of course, the, that last one was interesting because it talked about the use of technology, television, radios, such things as that as means of evangelism. And of course, now we're in the internet age, so we have even more media opportunities to reach people with biblical truth. And of course, you know, a lot of people also have those technologies to preach things that are very unbiblical. So there's that. And so while others were writing term papers on other topics, you know, some of my term papers were focused on past movements and key figures in those movements. Now, I, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying this to boast or, or brag or anything like that. I, I'm just simply noting that I'm qualified to speak on the topic of revival. My heart has always been, more than anything else, towards a genuine awakening through the Spirit toward embracing the whole Bible message of Torah and Yeshua together, just as described in Revelation 14.12, which is another important passage to this study that we will refer to again. I've always believed that if God said to do or not do something in the Bible, that's what we should follow. This is why my earliest years in this walk, when people showed me things like the food laws or the Sabbath day, it was not even a question for me to follow these things. Despite the fact that most Christians continue against the whole of Scripture to believe that these things are abolished and refuse to follow them. Something that I can say with good confidence has marked all past movements, whether they're called revivals, awakenings, spiritual breakouts, or anything else really, is that they had an emphasis on returning to obedience to Scripture. Read the works of Charles Finney. His book, Lectures on Revival, is a good start. Read the message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, by Jonathan Edwards. That's probably the most famous sermon of the First Great Awakening, what's called the First Great Awakening in America. And of course, Jonathan Edwards was a prominent figure in that. Read the books, Why Revival Tarries and Sodom Had No Bible, by Leonard Ravenhill. Now, I'm not saying I would agree with all of these people's theology. Edwards was a Calvinist. Finney had some kind of odd beliefs, it seems. Ravenhill was probably the one I'd most align with because he's a old, more kind of Pentecostal-type revivalist preacher. So I'd, I'd probably have the most in common with him and his work. But, you know, while I wouldn't agree with all their theology... They were no-nonsense messages by no-nonsense revivalist preachers that invoked a genuine fear of God and a hunger for obedience. Let me turn back to that point again about 
the term revival being extra biblical, as Dr. Keener points out. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the earliest reference to this idea of revival is attributed to a Puritan by the name of Cotton Mather in 1702. So this idea or concept of revival is relatively new in the overall history of biblical faith practice, or, or we really could say the history of Christianity as a religion. However, this still doesn't yet mean that the concept is unbiblical. Again, using this term to denote that which is against Scripture in contrast with extra-biblical in reference to that which is not in the Bible, but not necessarily against it either. Again, if there's a case to be made that there can be a legitimate concept of revival, then we cannot deem it fully unbiblical. We can, however, determine that there are unbiblical counterfeit revivals. Some would contend that if there's a case to be made that there is a biblical basis for revival, it would be exclusive to what is commonly called the Old Testament. In an article titled, The Old Testament Concept of Revival Within the New Testament, published in Kairos, Evangelical Journal of Theology, Volume 8, Number 1, the author, Irvin Budisilic, states that three issues characterize the Old Testament concept of revival. A. Revival must be viewed in the context of the covenant which the Lord established with Israel at Sinai. B. Revival means a revival of Israel. And C. The saving dimension of revival often involves earthly and material blessings. In another article titled Revival and Revivalism, a historical and doctrinal evaluation, published in the Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal, the author Gerald Priest says, in the Old Testament, revival is a form of covenant rededication and necessarily includes restoration to divine favor. And then he continues a few lines later in saying, renewal comes through reform, that is, a return to covenant obedience to Yahweh. The only examples we have in Scripture that can even come remotely close to being called revivals would be the short-lived reforms under King Hezekiah and King Josiah, as well as possibly the events recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. However, in all of these examples there is a clear return to living by the Torah, which had been abandoned in the first two examples through the period of Israel's idolatry, and the latter as a result of the Babylonian captivity. In the case of Hezekiah and Josiah, we see very clearly two things, the smashing of idols and the return to the Torah. In the case of Nehemiah and Ezra, we see a return from the exile with a desire to restore Torah worship of Yah, though there are indications that they didn't get everything right, and these books may actually be documenting the early formations of Phariseeism. This will be important to this study as we go on. 
Now, I would ask then, at this point, if we're not seeing the smashing of idols, at least in concept, that meaning that while we may not have literal idol statues to smash today, although in some places we do, we certainly have an abundance of idolatry within Christianity that needs to be abandoned. So if we're not seeing the smashing of, of idols and a return to covenant obedience to the Torah, are we truly seeing revival? Like according to the Bible? Another important note that cannot be overlooked is that all examples within the biblical narrative that could be associated with the Christian concept of revival come from the portion of scripture commonly called by Christians the Old Testament. But the overwhelming majority of Christians, especially those generally reporting revival or some kind of movement, awakening, or spiritual outbreak, live under the theology that they are not under the Old Testament. You know, you hear Christians all the time with, within the context of antinomian Christianity, they'll, they'll say, well, that's the law. We're not under the law. That's the law of Moses. Or, or they'll say, well, that's Old Testament. We're not under the Old Testament. And this is a misconception, of course, between that theology and the biblical concept of the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. Totally different things, but they get those things mixed up and they, they have these concepts of Old Testament that are technically wrong. So, can we really associate the Christian concept of revival with the Bible at all when the only examples even remotely close to it are from the portion of Scripture rejected as no longer applicable? I mean, when you say that we're not under the Old Testament as a means of rejecting the commandments, at least in part, then you've also rejected both the only possibly biblical basis for revival and the fact that biblical revival would be a return to keeping those very same rejected commandments. If we're to accept the Christian concept of revival, it seems we must accept it on terms outside of the parameters of Scripture, as something extra-biblical at best and possibly as something unbiblical. Now, I've heard, as I've already stated, some people have been saying that, well, Satan wouldn't do that. He, he wouldn't lead masses of people to a worship service and, and Satan wouldn't heal people like we're seeing in, at this movement or that movement. And, and Satan wouldn't cause hundreds of young people to gather together in prayer. But look, this is really simply not a true statement. I'm going to show it to you. Have you ever been to a secular rock or, or a rap concert? You know, it's, it's not something I recommend, of course, but most people prior to coming to faith in Yeshua on any level have been to at least one. And, and some of, many people claiming to be Christians today go to some of the most demonic secular concerts out there. So a lot of people in Christian faith have been to these kinds of concerts. You know, people who bought tickets to these shows months in advance will line up and wait for hours for the doors to the stadium or the concert hall to open up. And much of the time, they're a lot friendlier than Christians attending some of these scheduled revival services somewhere, which 
can be more akin to what you see at some of these Black Friday sales. You know, I've seen some of the craziest, most insane stuff happen at scheduled revival meetings. They'll show up, they'll wait in line for hours to get in the door, and as soon as the door is open, it's a mad rushing to the place. They're they're pushing each other out of the way, trying to get to a to a seat. I've I've seen people take a Bible and throw it, and wherever it landed was the seat that they claimed was their seat. I'm not kidding. Now, now look. If Satan can do these kinds of things, if he can pack a stadium of people for a rock or a rap concert, you know, he can also lead people to line up in droves to sing so-called worship songs in an antinomian Christian church environment. I'll remind you that Satan is the lawless one and antinomianism is a fancy theology word for lawlessness. Then there's the matter of prayer. You know, there's a lot of world religions that hold a lot of prayer gatherings. Muslims, for example, pray several times a day, often gather together in a crowd in their mosques, and, you know, of course, they're all facing towards Mecca, as is their custom. Should we say that they're in revival because they get big crowds to gather in prayer? If you look at pictures of Muslims in prayer in their mosques, and some of the pictures that I've been looking at that people have shared about recent prayer gatherings associated with the revival at the uh, college campuses, you know, there's really a, not that much difference in them. I've seen pictures where they've had these Christians, these college students, sitting in on a lawn, and they're all lined up, and they're all facing the same way, and they really don't look that different from what you see Muslims doing at a mosque. And, and while, again, this is not to make any judgments or criticisms, but to simply use this as an illustration. How can we know that in a primarily antinomian Christian gathering, tr they truly are praying to the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, that gave his Torah and intends for his followers to live by it, even if they are, even if they're really praying to, legitimately praying to the God of Scripture, Proverbs 28.9 says that those who turn their ears from the Torah, even their prayer is an abomination. It really makes me wonder just who it is that's listening and answering the prayers of the lawless masses of Christianity. If we're being honest and truly taking Scripture for what it says, the logical conclusion is that any answered prayers in any antinomian environment are the work of Satan for the purpose of keeping people bound to their lawlessness. Think about it. If Satan answers the prayers of the Torah-rejecting masses of Christian religion, they will believe God answered their prayers despite their lawless religious practice and despite passages like Proverbs 28, verse 9, leading them to think they are in right standing with God 
while simultaneously living in disobedience to his Torah. You know, I once heard a preacher say that God cannot bless you beyond your last act of disobedience. Well, I'm not sure that that's 100% a theologically accurate statement. It kind of is, but it kind of shows. And we see it through Proverbs 28.9 and other passages that God is not listening to the prayers of the lawless. So if they're getting their prayers heard and answered, it really should raise the question, who is listening and who is providing answers to make people think that they're in right standing with God when they're rejecting and disobeying his commandments. Look, you know, again, people want to say that, you know, well, you're judging the, the revival and, and you're just being critical and, and you're just being negative. Look, wouldn't, wouldn't the truly judgmental ones be those who have judged such a spiritual outbreak to be a genuine revival? You know, we're talking about an, an environment of antinomianism, an environment of people who do not believe that they have to follow God's commandments. So wouldn't the people being judges be the ones that are saying, this is a genuine revival and we don't care what the Bible says? And, and then further judge those who raise legitimate questions, you know, as I have, and concerns as speaking against the revival. You know, I would think that those are the judgmental ones. In the current event, as has been the case with many such reports of revival, there are testimonies of healing. But there are also so-called faith healers outside of Christianity, too. You know, there's the gurus and the shamans and the witch doctors and so on with confirmed and documented miracles that take place through their efforts. These things are obviously not happening by the Spirit of God. If Satan can create healing through these types of faith healers, then once again it stands to reason that he can do it in a predominantly antinomian Christian environment. And again, it makes sense that Satan would do this more through antinomian Christianity than anywhere else because it's here he can truly deceive people into believing they're in right standing with God while they refuse to obey God's commandments. I hear testimonies of deliverance as well, but these are the standard kind of things that always get lifted up as testimonies such as deliverance from things regarded as sexual sins in scripture and things de deliverance from drugs and alcohol and deliverance from witchcraft and other such matters and and none it's not to belittle these things or minimize these things but these tend to often fall into what i would call cultural holiness which is whatever popular religion of the day deems to remain a part of their own holiness code whether it can be tied to scripture or not while dismissing things that are part of genuine biblical holiness. Let me, let me give you an example. So Pentecostals and, and Baptists too, and you know some of the other denominations have historically in America, and, and this goes back to American prohibition, but historically have deemed it sin to even take a drink of an alcoholic beverage. No, 
I don't endorse drinking alcohol at all. I, I teach abstinence. I think that's a wise choice. But for an example purpose, there's nothing in the Bible that actually prohibits it. And in fact, there do seem to be scriptures that are approving of drinking in moderation. And again, I'm not absolutely 100% not promoting drinking alcohol. But my point is there's no scripture directly against it, yet Christians will say that holiness, a, a standard of holiness, is not drinking alcohol. But there's no biblical basis for that. But then you turn around and try to talk to them about the food laws, and you talk to them about pork and shellfish and the things that Leviticus 11 says not to eat, and that Leviticus 11.44 and Leviticus chapter 20, verses 25 and 26 ties the phrase, be holy as I, God, am holy, directly connects that phrase with keeping the food laws in those passages. And, and so you try to bring that up to Christians and they'll look at you like you're crazy. They, they can't comprehend that we should follow those commandments because they've been told over and over and over again that they don't have to follow those commandments. Well, go back and read Genesis chapter 3, particularly verses 1 through 5, over and over and over and over and over again. And maybe eventually you'll figure out who has all of the Christians convinced that they're allowed to eat things that God said not to eat. Yeah, you yeah, know, these things, these things about sexual sins and things like that, they're, they're typically linked with the Torah as well, of course. You know, there, there are certainly things within the commandments that would address various sexual behaviors and would regard them as sin. And yes, there's absolutely biblical prohibitions against witchcraft practices, obviously. And to some extent, there are even biblical admonitions against at least the consumption of alcohol and so-called recreational drugs to the point of drunkenness or intoxication where your mind is impaired. But while these things are absolutely part of embracing Torah obedience, if they don't ultimately lead you to a complete Torah obedience, then they serve only to further solidify the deception of the lawless one. You know, look, I see Christians all the time that, that have testimony of being delivered from drugs or testimony of delivered from, you know, this, that, or the other. But then you try to talk to them about some of these other commandments. And, you know, first of all, they've been told that they don't have to follow them. And second of all, they, they are given this attitude of, what do you want from me? I got delivered from drugs and you want to pick on me about eating pork? And that's the attitude of Christianity. And, th and that's why we have to be concerned with these reported revivals. Because this is the fruit that it bears. And let me interject this here. There's no such thing as a requirement on any one person to follow every one of the commandments. You know, most people accept the count of 613 commandments, which is typically attributed to Maimonides, which is a famous medieval period rabbi. You know, and people will be like, well, you know, 
if you're going to keep that law, that, that Moses law, well, you better keep all 613 commandments. Well, well nobody's required. Nobody was ever, not one person in the history of the world, even Yeshua, was required to keep all 613 commandments. I'm going to show you. See, if we look at the list, we find that there are many commandments that have a specific prerequisite. For example, about half of the commandments require you to be a Levite priest before you're even allowed to keep them. Others would require you to be a king over Israel, a, a court official, a farmer, a man, a woman, or a child. So again, even Yeshua, the Messiah, at the very least, was not required to follow commandments that pertained only to women. And there are other categories that certainly he fell outside of as well. I point this out because whenever you talk about obeying all of the commandments, people tend to get a little confused. That said, there are commandments that are clearly apply to all people at all points of history. And some of these are among the most rejected by Christians today. Some people wonder why certain ministries and Bible teachers, such as myself, place a lot of focus on a handful of commandments, primarily the Leviticus 11 food laws, the biblical Sabbath day, the biblical feast days, and the relationship between several unbiblical holidays that are likely a violation of Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 31, and a few other passages where we're told not to appropriate the ways of pagan religion or the religious practices of the nations and use them in worship to the Hebrew God. But it's because of the mass rejection of these matters that they must come to the forefront of all discussions pertaining to biblical obedience. In Acts 15, there's four things that are brought to the front of the discussion. Most of the time, these are taken as being the only things that are to be imposed on converts to the faith from the Gentile nations. But this line of thinking is problematic in that there's things not on the list that very few Christians would, would today call an acceptable practice you know, for Christians. For example, we see no prohibition in the four things listed in Acts 15 against lying or stealing. But very few Christians would go so far as to say that these are acceptable practices for a follower of Yeshua simply because they're omitted from Acts 15. Also, proper study of the passage shows that these were the greatest religious strongholds of the day due to their high importance in the pagan religion that the converts were coming out of. In like manner today, we are no longer simply calling people out of the world and out of pagan religions. In fact, at least in the United States, it's not often the case that we're dealing with people attached to other religions. American evangelism deals more with generally secular people than those committed to a particular world religion or even a cult religion. Now, you know, there is an element in America of the cult religions with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists. People debate about whether the Seventh-day Adventist is a cult religion or, you know, just very sketchy, but 
it, it seems appropriate to categorize them as a cult. But if we truly want to lead people to the whole truth of Scripture, we also must focus on the greatest strongholds over Christianity as well. And these seem to be the false belief that the food laws, Sabbath, and feast days are not to be practiced by Christians, while certain secular pagan holidays are to be practiced by them. In order to determine that a true revival, awakening movement, or spiritual breakout, whatever you want to call it, is taking place and is led by the Spirit of God, then we have to be able to measure it against Scripture. Ezekiel 36, 27, once again, tells us that where the Spirit is involved, the people will be caused to walk in God's law. The Torah, from cover to cover, the Bible tells us to obey the commandments of God. All the way to the very end of Revelation, where it says that those who kept the commandments will be those given a right to the partake of the tree of life. Since testimonies of divine healing and deliverance from such things as sexual sins, drugs and alcohol, or witchcraft are the expectation of Christians today, this doesn't seem to be a particularly good measuring stick to test a particular movement against. But if we saw people in a fully antinomian environment, a place where it's taught that certain commandments are voided, led by the Spirit of God, in large numbers consciously deciding to stop eating unclean things and determining that they will keep the biblical Sabbath and the biblical feast days and renouncing the popular but completely unbiblical holidays, then we might have a stronger case to say only God could do this. Because Satan can and will lead people from anything between full-blown antinomianism to partial antinomianism or, or partial nomianism, even to the point of keeping most of the applicable commandments. You know, Satan will, will get you to a place where, where even if you obey most of the commandments, he'll always find one that, that is just too much. It's just, just unbelievable. Think of the rich young ruler. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? In the story of the rich young ruler, Yeshua came to him and said, you know, you got to keep the commandments. And he said, well, which ones? And Yeshua named off a bunch of the commandments. And he said, but I've kept all of the commandments since my youth. And, and Yeshua said to him, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and, and follow me. What he did, what he actually did was he called him to follow the one commandment he had never become familiar with, and that's the commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, the commandment to Shema, hear, listen to, follow, and obey the prophet like Moses, which is Yeshua. So Yeshua was calling him to say, he said, okay, there's one more commandment, but you've never heard of it before until now because I am that commandment. And if you followed all of the other commandments, there's still one. And that is to get rid of everything you've got and follow me. And the, the rich young ruler walked away 
and Satan got a hold of him and said, see, I got you. I found one commandment that you won't keep. And that's the way it is with Christians today. There's always a commandment. And, and it's usually something like the food laws or the Sabbath day. In most cases, those are the commandments that you can get Christians to a certain point, but that's just too, that's just too much. What Satan, the lawless one, cannot do is lead people to full pronomianism because he's the lawless one. So it's impossible for Satan to get you all the way. He can get you and will get you as close as he, will, as he needs to, but keeping you deceived. But he is not going to lead you all the way to fully following Yeshua and his Torah lifestyle. Satan is the deceiver, and he'll always give you everything you need to stay within the realm of what the Apostle Paul called the delusional force of lawlessness. See 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8-11. through 11. If Satan can keep you deceived through a belief that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament altogether, then that's where he'll lead you. This actually makes it easier for him to keep you deceived because, you know, if you get this itch for something a little more holy, you know, you just, just feel like that, that unhitch from the Old Testament thing is, is just too far away from the Bible. You got to find something to obey. Well, he'll say, okay. And then he'll just lead you to a place with a, a little more cultural holiness in it, but you know, certainly not a place that's all in with the whole counsel of Scripture. And if he needs to take you to a place that has the appearance of revival, but still rejects at least that handful of commandments that Christianity has for the most part deemed obsolete in order to keep you deceived, that's exactly what he will do. There's even a growing number of churches today that have turned to following the food laws, keeping the Sabbath, and celebrating the feast days, but refuse to go to, um, to let go of certain popular holidays that come from Roman Catholicism, with likely influences from other religions blended into them. Now, of course, I'm talking about Christmas and Easter and Halloween, as well as some of the Catholic feast days for their saints. And, and you know... It's not even just St. Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day anymore. I'm seeing more and more Christians talking about lesser-known Catholic saints and their appointed feast days as well. Not too long ago, I saw a bunch of Christians talking about some saint who, after being beheaded, according to the mythology, you know, this is the mythology of this particular saint, just just like there was mythology of the Greek gods and mythology of the Roman gods. Those concepts carried over into the Roman Catholic religion and into the concepts of saints, and they created mythologies of these saints. And this is a mythology of this particular saint that he was beheaded, and after that he allegedly walked around preaching while holding his severed head in his hands. Now, now, I mean, I'm not saying that that's impossible because, you know, we, we have things in the scripture that just seem impossible. But, you know, when it's a Catholic saint mythology, 
you know, I, I, I just have a hard time wanting to accept that. And then more recently, I saw someone share a photo where they were standing next to an idol statue of St. Bridget, which is comes from Irish culture. And there was, th there was an early Christian, if you want to call her that, by that name. But there's also a pagan goddess by the name of Bridget. And the Catholics molded the two together. And if you look at the Catholic depictions of this, it's I, nearly identical to the pagan goddess that it was taken from. And, and so this person was standing next to a statue of St. Bridget, the, the Catholic idol, and talking about her feast day. You know, it, it's like nobody in Christianity has any discernment of spirits anymore. You know, and, and I get it. Discernment of spirits is one of the, the gifts of the spirit. And so, you know, not everybody is necessarily supposed to operate in that, but somebody is. You know, there there's, according to the theology of the gifts of the spirit, you know, prominent, especially in Pentecostal beliefs, there's the nine gifts of the spirit and they're outlined in, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and one of them is the discernment of spirits. And somebody has to operate in that, or else people will be deceived. How can we truly call something a revival, an awakening, a movement, or a spiritual breakout when lawlessness abounds? It doesn't matter what people appear to be, that it doesn't matter that people appear to be delivered from it if in the end, the whole counsel of scripture is not being embraced. And, and look, this is where I'm going to conclude the message for now. And I'm going to pick up in the next part of this message. So just stay tuned and, and we'll pick this back up. Hey friends, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. If this message has impacted you, please feel free to share it with others. If you're enjoying these teachings, be sure to subscribe and consider becoming a $4.99 or $9.99 monthly partner. If you want to make a larger donation, please contact ministry at truthignited.com. And if you're interested in more teachings like this from Truth Ignited Ministry, be sure to check out the website at www.truthignited.com and follow Truth Ignited on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll see you next time. Blessings and Shalom.